0: This is GESTORAS. Today's episode is in English. El episodio de hoy de GESTORAS es en inglés. Pueden leer una transcripción en español en nuestro sitio web o pueden ver el episodio en YouTube con subtítulos en español. GESTORAS Podcast brings you conversations with cultural managers from the North and the South. We celebrate the work of Latina cultural managers sharing their stories of success, challenges, and lessons learned. The episodes alternate between Spanish and English each week. Stephanie Ibarra is a program officer in the arts and culture program of the Mellon Foundation with a focus on performing arts. Before joining the foundation, she served as artistic director of Baltimore Center Stage, where she broke ground as the country's first Latina artistic director of a League of Resident Theaters member theater. During her tenure, She was instrumental in leveraging powerful artistic works as a catalyst for conversation, reflection, and action. Prior to taking on the role of artistic director of Baltimore Center Stage in 2018, Stephanie served as the director of special artistic projects at the Public Theater, where she led the mobile unit and public forum programs. She first launched her career in her home state of Texas at the Dallas Theater Center and Dallas Children's Theater later transitioning to institutions including the Yale Repertory Theatre, Two River Theatre Company, and Citizen Schools, a national after-school program based in Boston. While in New York, she co-founded the Artists' Anti-Racism Coalition, a grassroots organizing effort to dismantle systems of oppression in the off-Broadway community. Stephanie's work has been widely recognized with awards including the Josephine Abadie Award for Producing from New York's League of Professional Theatre Women, the Gerba Buena Center for the Arts 100 in 2019, the Congressional Award for Achievement in Excellence from Sara Aina, an international nonprofit dedicated to community-engaged art making, and for her sustained work around diversity and inclusion, she received the prestigious Nation Building Award from the National Black Caucus of State Legislators in 2018. Stephanie serves as a faculty member at the Juilliard School and New York University. She's currently on the board of Citizen University, Make Believe Association, as well as the Artistic Council for the People's Theater Project. She holds an MFA from the Yale School of Drama and a BFA from Baylor University. Hi, Stephanie. It's so good to have you here to hear about your story and hear about how it was that you became you. So I guess that's my first question for you. How did Stephanie Varla get to be Stephanie Varla? What built you?
1: Uh, I love that question and there is like, I guess there are some simple ways to answer that question and some ways that are like, I think appropriately complex. Um, when I think about the simple ways to answer that question, I think like the, I am who I am because of my family. I am who I am because I am the oldest of three sisters. Um, I, and I am who I am because I had, um, <laughs> myriad matriarchs, um, uh, to, to sort of look up to and to, to model my own, my own self after, um, the more complex, conversation or answer to that question is i um i am who i am because my whole life i have had to have one foot there and one foot here and, and um that started from jump because my my mother and father are um it, interracial maybe is not the appropriate term but my father is mexican uh, american and my mother is czech AKA just straight up white. And Mm -hmm. that my, my, my father was a, a darker skinned, um, Mexican American. And so that, that dynamic, the cultural dynamic back in 1976, when they had me, um, really set the stage for how my parents raised me, how my father interacted with, um, our, uh, shared culture or not. Um, as the case was, and, and how I had to navigate a kind of dual identity um, and understand and, love, and come to love both, both identities, I guess, both sides of my family. Um, so having to traverse all of that complexity is how I get to where I am today and who I am today.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about how that impacted you so did, did you learn Czech did you learn Spanish were those were those identities suppressed encouraged
1: sure so i I grew up um, speaking only English though I know the bad words in both Czech and Spanish because Good. both it's interesting both <laughs> exactly the <laughs> basics the um, basics
0: are important <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the both sides of my family, um, folks, uh, immigrated at the same point. Uh, so that's my both great grandparents on both sides, and so both grandparents on um, both sets of grandparents had all of the language, all of the culture, and um, both sets of grandparents made an active decision to cut it off and that's most relevant for me because i'm walking through the world with olive brown skin and dark like uh wiry you know sometimes frizzy always curly hair um it it impacted me most with my spanish or lack thereof and the the lore in my family it's not even lore it's it's a literal true story my father Alejandro Suarez Ivarra was the oldest of five to um, Graciela Ivarra and um, Alex Senior. And um, he, my dad was born um, in the States, but he grew up, he spent the first five years of his life in on an army base in Germany. And the story goes that my dad's first language was Spanish. And then they got to this army base and he was out on the playground, and none of the kids were playing with him because he didn't speak English, and they didn't speak Spanish. And so, my grandparents made the decision to speak in English. They argued in Spanish. They yelled yeah, in Spanish. They want you know they like watch the, the telenovelas and, and everything else in Spanish, but to their kids, English. Um, so they made an active choice to assimilate. So none. Of, my dad, when he passed away, um, in 2018 um 2019 i'm sorry uh he had i would say like a child's level of spanish Mm. um my aunts and uncles to my knowledge um don't have much if at all and so me and my cousins and my sisters have all then spent lots of money trying to learn spanish but so that's just like one tiny example of of uh The ways that, you know, the culture, my culture was present, but also I was actively, I felt actively dissuaded from leaning into it. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, um, which is like, you know, (laughs) it's an incredibly Mexican city, but, um, but Mexican was not a word. It was not, it's not a good word. Um, when I was growing up to be, to be saying I'm Mexican or I'm Mexican American, that was not a thing that, that, um, that we leaned into, uh, even though it was, it was always there, it was present. It was just, I, I will always remember asking my father, like, what am I? Cause somebody at school said, what are you? Um, and he said, you're, <laughs> he said, you're my daughter and you're Texan and you're American.
0: Hmm.
1: That's
0: it. So, so the goal was assimilation, right? Rather than uh, digging into those identities. Um, yeah, as a kid, I, I spent a few years, same years, early seventies, um, in the United States as well, and that was very much the thrust of it: is to assimilate, to not. In fact, the, the the Latin identity was seen as something shameful, right? Or or less than. you know, the, you should. The next step was to progress into being an, an having an American accent and an American identity, a, a white American identity. Yeah. So another exactly. part of of, of exactly. where your life led you has to do with your being an artistic director and being in theater. So, what role did that play in your family? Are your family in theater? Are they, or was it just you? <laughs> How did that happen?
1: Just, just me. Well, my my parents um, were musicians, so I grew up. Mm. Um, I grew up listening to them play all of the woodwind instruments. Um, I grew up going to band rehearsals, symphony rehearsals, orchestra rehearsals, um, and and so you know, in, in some ways they really didn't have a leg to stand on when I was like, I want to go into theater. You know, they were sort of like, okay, well, you know, who are we to talk? Um, (laughs) But, but they were, they were super supportive of, of, of me um, throughout my career. Never once told me to have a fallback. Never once told me, you know, they were just, they were great. But that, that, um, well, theater specifically is, doesn't show up, I think, anywhere else really to, to this degree in my family, even in my extended family. Um, my, my family, like, especially on the Ibarra and Suarez side, is like the there's lots of writers and photographers, like, the arts are present um, in my ancestry for sure. So I think this is just another manifestation, a natural uh, manifestation of what's in my DNA.
0: So how did, how did you come to, to artistic direction? How did you find your way there? And and what was it about it that, that you said, this is my place?
1: I didn't even really know that title when, so I, mm-hmm. through high school, you know, I wanted to be an actor cause we don't, we all, um, and I went to undergrad and studied acting and I still like, I was not familiar with like the structures of our theaters. Um, and the very first time I got an inkling was um, when I applied for an internship in Dallas as an actor one summer during undergrad, and I did not get it. Um, and the the one of the people who was on the adjudicating panel, um, she's the founding artistic director of Dallas Children's Theater. Her name is Robin Flat. Yeah. And in my interview, she had asked me, would you ever consider have you ever considered running a theater and oh. i truthfully at that point at whatever 20 21 years old i was like no i hadn't i, I didn't i never considered that i will do you want me to what do you know what i need to do to get this internship so that was like the very 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 first like nascent seed but i still didn't clock like connected to artistic direction that wouldn't come m- until much later after I sort of moved on from acting um, and worked in uh, administration in various capacities. And then, like, again, remember I said one foot here, one foot there. Right. I, I felt like the industry wanted me to choose a side, business or art. And mm. I did not want to choose. And so um, I. it wasn't until in the last 10 years of my career that I'm like oh, okay I think I see a way to get to use both my business acumen and my artistic acumen um and it seems like the the field might be might be ready for somebody like me to be sitting in the seat of artistic director and so by somebody by like me in this context i mean I, I don't mean a woman and i don't i don't actually mean a latina I mean mm-hmm. somebody who has who knows math who can like who can math and dramaturg and raise money and read a balance sheet and produce you know like somebody with that like that skill set um, so yeah that's but um I had to i had to be sort of. Shown that, invited into that headspace, Mm -hmm. and then invited into um, processes for artistic leadership positions um, in order to actually be able to make my way there.
0: That's an interesting point. the role of artistic director or the competencies of artistic director have changed and they are now requiring all sorts of other things that aren't just, aren't just the creative approach right, to, to a work, but require all these other skills that you had. So in a way, it's just that the field met you where you were. You you were the first Latina to be named artistic director of a Lort theater. That's a big deal. What was that experience like for you? To finally have a theater that you were uh, leading
1: Yeah. It was, um, so surreal. I would, my, um, my dear friend, um, Maria Goyanes at Woolly Mammoth Theater in DC. Um, she came to visit because we were together at the public. She came to visit me in Baltimore. Um, and we were going up the elevator. I was like, Maria, somebody gave me the keys to this theater. Like I run this place. (laughs) And we, and she was like, I know it's so crazy. The But the, it came with like, you know, not to get all like Spider-Man, but great, you know, <laughs> with great power, great responsibility. Um, I felt, a I felt a tremendous amount of pressure, um, from the, like some of it was self-imposed, but a lot of it was coming from, um, my beloved community of artists and, uh and uh the BIPOC theater makers and what have you that um i i didn't i didn't understand this until i was uh, almost a year into my tenure but the the expectation of me because i was a vocal um proponent of anti racism because i am a you know currently light-skinned uh light light brown skinned woman um I, I felt, I started to feel like the expectation was that I should fix it immediately
0: mm.
1: and, um, and that I could fix it immediately. And so I, and that it can be fixed immediately. Cor- yeah. Correct. Correct. And so, and, and, um, that, so I disappointed a lot of people and myself and, um, I did not, I did not. Yeah. That was the biggest sort of, surprise mm. i think for me stepping into a leadership position and then the the other surprise was um i don't know why i was surprised by this but i told everybody who i was throughout the interview process <laughs> um and somehow i m- me and who i am still surprised some people and they were very unhappy with it mm. um so getting to revisit some of the like um, dynamics that I experienced when I was a when I was growing up was uh, I, I didn't expect it to come back with such a with such fury, but it did.
0: Do you think it was that the perception of who you would be was stronger than than that what was in front of them?
1: Maybe I still haven't figured some of this out. I think I'll be processing it and healing from it for quite a long time. Um, but when you know when i programmed my first season it like the writers and directors were overwhelmingly um brown and black people the folks who were staffing the shows were overwhelmingly brown and black people you know and uh, i immediately started getting um all of the the usual stuff you have an agenda this is so political blah 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 meow 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 Mm um and from some of the like larger um, public writ law, you know, the sort of folks who are not inside or close to the institution, I get it. They didn't have a say or a stake in choosing me. But then there were folks who were closer to the process, um, who had heard me say these things throughout my interview process, and nobody can look at my producing le- record. My cat, like the casting of mm-hmm. the mobile units, all of it. Nobody could look at that and then look at what I did at Baltimore Center Stage and be like, "Oh, I'm shocked." You know, it, it's, it's it's pretty obvious to me. Yes. But um, but also, you know, people hear what they want to hear. They see what they want to see. They, I, I believe that the folks who were so hateful to me um, were also. Um, I, I legitimately believe that they wanted, want what is best for their community and their institution, and we just go about it different ways. And um, there's a generational situation, there's a gender situation, and um, all of those things are operating. So I have quite a lot of compassion for some folks and less compassion for others.
0: While you were there, though, in the midst of all of this, you, you were a co-founder right, of the Artist Anti-Racism Coalition, uh, was that a result of what you were experiencing in those moments? Was that a, the end of a process? How did you, how did that happen?
1: That came actually before my artistic directorship. So that was, that was going on. Mm-hmm. That started while I was at the public theater. Um, so my, um, a few classmates of my, uh, from grad school uh, and I, they, uh, Roberta uh, Pereira and Jacob Adron and David Roberts, we all were in grad school together. We um, are all people of color, and we were all inside of institutions at the time where we. I don't. I don't think one of us was running one. Maybe Roberta was running one, but we were all inside of institutions where we had a high degree of of like. Um, uh, how you say it, like protect like protection? Like we weren't going to get fired for shooting off our mouth, you know. <laughs> um, and in my case, at the public theater, you know, I had a boss who encouraged it. Um, so <laughs> that the that coalition was born of like many things, the 2016 election. Um, And it was born of a shared training that we all did the undoing racism and um, community organizing workshop with the people's Institute for survival and beyond. Um, Mm. And the provocation inside of that training was to apply the, the anti-racism principles to our own backyard. And for us, that meant the off Broadway theater community. Um, So it was really born of a, a of a desire to like finally start having some hard conversations and to be able to do that from, from like this perch that we had all we had all climbed just high enough that people would take our phone calls. But we had not climbed high enough yet that we could be toppled like we had, we had a layer between us. So we were like, we, right, you know, right. we have the privilege now to do this. Let's do it.
0: I want to come back to something you said a little bit earlier too. Where you said that when you were at center stage, you experienced some of the things that you had experienced as a child and that you had hoped to live behind. And I'm curious about your skin experience over the course of your lifetime. How did that change from Texas to New York to, to Baltimore, if it, if it changed at all?
1: Uh, I really appreciate that question. Um, it has changed so drastically um, uh, over the course of my life, and the the thing that I don't know if I've ever uh, shared this like publicly. It, it's not something; it just doesn't come up um, in casual conversation. But when I was a child, so I was in San Antonio, Texas. I told you my father um, uh, had had dark darker skin. I would say he was on the darker side of the spectrum. Um, I spent a lot of time in the sun. I, so I was like Brown. Um, and in the context of San Antonio, um, in the context of Texas, I, I looked Mexican. Um, and then the mexicans sometimes didn't know what to do with me because i because it, there, there's some bone structure uh, stuff going on but um but my <laughs> that's right that's right the, the eastern europeans it came it came through <laughs> um this little chexican running around and like nobody knows what to do with her um but the um I remember, I remember getting asked so many times, what are you? What are you? What are you? So already like presenting in a way that people did not know what to do with me, but the, the, um, those that did. So my, my mother's extended family, um, expressed quite a lot of overt um, bigotry uh to my father they didn't go to the wedding and to me and my sisters but me because i was the firstborn. so um uh you know i i was the dirty mexican my father was the dirty mexican um the, to this day that that side of the family like um you, like we when we have to encounter them like you can f- feel it sort of wafting off of them um um but i i would look around and see myself as other i never once in my whole life never once um has anybody ever treated me like i was white nobody has ever su- assumed i'm white um and and in fact the because my skin was dark enough and because my father's skin was dark enough um i'll never forget this one summer we We used to always go to my grandparents' farm south of Houston. This is on the Czech side of my family. We used to go to my Czech grandparents had a farm and have a farm and we used to go and um for like i don't know four or five weeks, I think that's what it felt like me and my sisters um and one summer we did not go and I didn't find out until much later that that summer we didn't go because. Um, the extended family on my mom's side had um, issued death threats. They had offered up death threats to to me and my younger sister Michelle um, simply because What's... we were the spawn of the dirty Mexican. Yes, and so my mom was like, "I'm not sending you to the farm." Um, so on the one hand, like my where my skin experience starts um, is at at mm-hmm. the at best, it starts at what am I? What are you? And at worst it manifested in threats against my life because of the color of my skin. Over the course of my lifetime, as my skin has um, gotten thinner, I watched it happen to my grandmother. I watched it happen to my father. My skin has gotten lighter now and I don't spend as much time in the sun. (laughs) Um, By the time I got to Baltimore, I, I I was among the lighter skinned folks um, in any given room, unless I was in a room full of donors and, um, and in a room full of, you know, predominantly white folks, they were, I was constantly reminded, constantly reminded that I was not white. And, and there was one man who came up to me I was very early in my tenure and he was like, uh, he was like, I think, I think the word Latinx is bullshit direct quote. And I was like, oh, this is where we're starting. I think the word Latinx is bullshit. I don't know why you're not Hispanic. Hispanic was good enough for your father. I don't know why it's not good enough for you. Um, and I was like, well, sir, my father died two months ago. Um, so thank you for that. And also um, that you're making a ton of assumptions and please be gone. You know, it, it was, I, I like, I was shocked to be confronted with like that level of, of, I don't even know what to call that racism, bigotry, you know, privilege, whatever. Um, but it, to me, and those.
0: hostility, Right. Straight up, straight up hostility.
1: Yes. Like overt, overt hostility um, to me and my, my culture and um, and the way I was choosing to embrace it and lean into it. And so it felt like this weird, um, uh there it was like bookending experiences of my life that um even as an adult even as my skin has gotten lighter even as like i was in baltimore which is predominantly black city um but very black and white i was like oh okay maybe i don't know maybe i like live more on over here on this spectrum and and no mm -mm, absolutely not they were very quick to remind me that i was not one of them
0: these are things that you carry with you, right? That impact how you how you confront the world, how you enter spaces. When you enter a new space or you begin a new project, what is what is your philosophy? What what is your what's in your head? How do you approach your work?
1: Hmm. I'm always, whether I'm producing a, a piece of theater or in the case of my new gig at the Mellon Foundation, um, you know, engaging in conversations with uh, potential grantees or current grantees. I I think I'm always trying to help to co-construct the conditions for people to be their actual human selves in a space at a, Mm -hmm. at, you know, in every meeting, um, or in every production. And, and, I say co-construct because I believe deeply that when there is more than one person in a space, the space is co-constructed, and I want to honor that. Um, And then, you know, the the sort of bring your bring your full self. I'm putting air quotes. Bring your full self to the process or to the room. It feels like trite or played out in terms of a term, but like actually leaning into what do the conditions look like for this range of humans to be able to show up as themselves that that is a that is not simple at all and it changes with every constellation of humans on any given day you know so um i don't know that's that's always the goal because if people can show up as their full selves then the chances are whatever the assignment is for that group of people whether it's making a piece a play or um or, you know, t- talking about a grant or whatever. Um, I the, the, it's going to be a healthier environment for everybody. It's one of those things that I think raises all boats.
0: So that's in how you work and why you work the way you work. And you just mentioned that you've, you've moved from being an artistic director, which you've done for quite some time, and now you're on the funder side. What do you hope to accomplish as a funder? What is your goal?
1: I think that part of why I was brought on to the team at Mellon um, was to help provide a sort of bird's eye view, to help fill out the Mm -hmm. kind of bird's eye view of the arts and culture sector in this country. From coming with obviously my deep theater knowledge, but being asked and invited to um, apply that and look across. Um, artistic disciplines, which is really exciting. and that that allows for a kind of systemic analysis. There's just different uh, or uh, a systemic um, systemic interventions that is, is very different than what I could do at one theater. Um, and what I when I think about what I hope to accomplish, I first and foremost right now, I am just so happy to be back. In like a deep, deep, deep moment of learning, like I'm, I'm constantly on my learning edge um, in this position, and um, that's very different, you know. Having spent thirty years um, making theater, and now to be like, I don't know what today is supposed to look like. Um, um, so I'm going to learn as much as I can, but also, um, I think getting helping. The philanthropic space to get one percent better, um, you know, at one uh, percent um, more sophisticated in uh, in whatever work we're setting out to do. And I feel really lucky that Mellon that that culture is already alive and kicking at the Mellon Foundation. And my colleagues in arts and culture, I'm just learning from them constantly. It's it's like it's brilliant. It's it, It is brilliant to, to feel like I'm sitting inside of conversations where I, I'm intimidated by the intellect in the room (laughs) where I am, I am like sitting in silence mostly because I just cannot help but like voraciously, you know, absorb what my colleagues are saying and it's, it's glorious. So, but I I hope I get to a place where I can, I can pitch in and help leave it 1% better than when. I found
0: it. That sounds so exciting. It's always so exciting to be with really smart people who love what they do, who know what they do, and who are open to having discussions and conversations of what they know. I'm really happy for you that you have that space, finally. It looks like you've had a tough time uh, in, in, with, with certain sectors, right, of the, the folks you have to deal with. And I imagine now that you're, you're speaking to so many different potential grantees and grantees that you also have to do a bit of translating. How do you approach that? How do you approach either resolving conflicts or resolving misunderstandings or that kind of interpersonal challenges? Where do you come at?
1: I, I try to come from a place of, um, I'm not conflict averse. Um, and so I, I believe actually really deeply in the in healthy and uh, healthy conflict, or as I like to call it, to productive um, uh, dissatisfaction, um, and so I think it comes back to creating the conditions for folks to be their full selves, which comes with conflict, mess, opinions that aren't you know aren't like everybody else's, um, and so once that that container is um, available to folks, then conflict. It's never easy, but it can feel generative and easeful. And so, I, I, um, if I am facilitating a, a tense moment, then I will um, almost always um, default to leaning in and 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 asking questions. Say more. Say more. Say more. Say more um, to get to understanding. Um, And if I am participating in the conflict, um, then I, it is is harder sometimes for me to um, have the very open mind, but I try always to bring to bring a yes and into the space um, and I try so hard to hold mul- to, to like name multiple truths so that there can there that we that I am not falling into the trap of who is right and who is wrong that the binary is right and wrong. Um, because more often than not, there is that binary is not applicable where conflict lives. Right.
0: In conflict, when people dig in, a lot of times I feel it's about control, right? About retaining control of the narrative and retaining control of, of truth, of a truth, trying to find a truth and digging into it. And it seems for what you're doing with asking these, these, these probing questions, right? These expansive questions, you're creating a path through where it's, it's, I'm going to say it's comfortable, but it's a little easier to open up and be, and show a little bit of vulnerability and l- loosen control a little bit to continue to have a conversation to get to something that's more generative.
1: Yeah. There's, there's also something in conflict that is, uh, I think you're right to point out sort of like vulnerability and as a, as a tool um, inside of, as a driver and as a tool for helping to resolve conflict. Because I think um, conflict is also a lot of times driven by fear. Um, Fear of what, (laughs) you know, depends on the circumstances, but, but unearthing, whether it's a fear of loss of control or a fear of looking stupid or a fear of, you know, like there are so many fears that we are carrying around with us. Um, and so sometimes uh, unearthing whatever, even if it's this, it seems like a small fear to somebody, those stakes can be very high for somebody else and helping to, to understand that mitigate that, um, that can go a long way.
0: It looks like in your position, you can create the conditions or you can you can try to create the conditions where that can happen. Well, speaking of the future and speaking of conditions, we're nearing the end of our time, and I wish we weren't. My question is, someone who is, you know, just coming up into either arts management or coming up into the theater realm or wants to be a funder, who wants to occupy these spaces as well. And she comes to you for advice. Stephanie Ivarra, please tell me. What advice do you have for me? What would you say to her?
1: Hmm. Uh, I have had these questions. So the, there are a couple of refrains that um I say to folks who ask and that I still say to myself. Um the first is uh our pathways are nonlinear. They there is not a straight there's not necessarily a straight line between point A and point B. Um and to embrace the nonlinear pathways. Um and and number two is do not negotiate with yourself. Do not negotiate yourself out of an opportunity. If you have a question as to whether or not you are quote unquote qualified, default to yes, I am. And and the the like the kind of as it relates to career advancement, et cetera, et cetera, it's sort of a good rule of thumb is the only job you have is to create as many possibilities for yourself as there are, you know? And so saying yes to opportunities to apply or to speak up or to nominate yourself or what have you, um, to fight against the way that we are socialized um, to to diminish or to question, um, fight against that and create possibilities and opportunities and pathways.
0: The socialization part is very hard, right? Because women are told especially when they're younger, right, that they have to wait until they are worthy of, can step into those places, right? That's right. So as we talked about before, the last couple of questions are the one that another gestora has left. And then I'm going to ask you what question you're going to leave for somebody else. So your question is left for us by Mercedes Kashash. She is the art, co-artistic director of the SunFest, Festival in London, Ontario. And she asks, how are you embracing your femininity and presenting your femininity as you are moving forward? And what does femininity mean to you? So a very easy question. <laughs> She's left. <laughs>
1: um, I think I'll start with the, the like, what does femininity mean to me? Um, I've, I am still in the process of, of unlearning, um, the, the sort of, um, unhelpful gendered, uh, constructs of, and expectations of, of femininity, um, and, and looking for the ways that the feminine, um, inside of me and in the world can, um, can most be most impactful. Um, and I, I have, I struggle with, um, I mean, I grew up in Texas, so I was socialized really, really well in what it means to be a lady and what it means to be Southern and all of these things. Um, and so I, I still struggle mightily with, um, who I am innately, uh, as it relates to the expectations put upon me. Um, and they are all across gender lines. And so I have I've, with the help and and mentorship of um, some youths, some uh, some of my my favorite people are queer, non-binary, trans uh, youth of youths of color. Um, if they're listening to this, they're going to be so happy. Uh, but but I've learned quite a lot from from them on how to reject um some of the, the constructs and how to understand femininity and feminine, um, the femme in general, in a more expansive way. Um, and so that's the, you know, that's the journey. That's the journey I'm on. Um, I lean into the feminine, but I, but even the word femininity, like the feminine divine and femininity, like start to like, uh, make my brain, um, hurt a bit. So I'm going to be chewing on that one for a while.
0: Exactly. For the right person at the right time, then.
1: Amen. Amen. What about
0: you? What do you want to leave for someone else? What question do you want to, to leave so, for another? Okay. So to answer.
1: <laughs> sure. So, um, i am uh in my i'm i am i just turned forty seven and so i am in my uh emerging elder era or my <laughs> i'm entering my senora era uh and so happy about it um and so this question i i am curious about um what what do you want to leave behind what 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 do you want to leave in this world Um, there's a question that I am thinking about and so I'd be curious to hear others answer.
0: We will ask that question then on your behalf. Stephanie Thank you so much for for being here with us and for making the time and to tell us your story. It has been absolutely wonderful to hear.
1: It's been a delight. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. This
0: episode of Her was hosted by Jimena Varela and produced by Anush Tetanian. It was recorded in Washington, D.C. and Houston, Texas, and mixed at the Arts Management Program at American University, Washington, D.C. The music was Hace que Exista, Make It Exist by Eli Ali.
1: And the graphic design
0: was by Bia Silva. Find us on YouTube at Haktaras and on Instagram and Facebook at Haktaras Podcast.